Well, hey, uh, if we haven't met yet, my name's Austin, one of the pastors here. Uh, quick, kind of honest question, uh, a little bit vulnerable, but funny too. How, have, I know people have talked about, you probably understand what crashing a wedding is. Has there anyone in here that's actually crashed a wedding? Anybody? Okay, Kelly, yeah, a couple Jeremy, if, uh, that's not surprising. Couple, yeah, a couple like kind of shy hands, like me, maybe. Okay, so uh, 10 years ago, I was on a mission trip in San Diego. I know, sign me up, right? I want to go there every uh, summer on a mission trip. But off of San Diego is an island called Coronado. And on Coronado, this very like wealthy, nice island is a Hotel Del Coronado. It's one of the most famous hotels in the world. Got a picture of it. That's what it looks like. Uh, it is amazing and extravagant, and so uh, we never stayed there, but would hang out. And uh, so anyways, there's, there's that. Well, we thought it would be a good idea to crash a wedding in one of the nicest hotels in the world. And so at a 19-year-old, Austin thought that was a good idea for some reason. And so um, we kind of got together. And to be clear, to caveat, we didn't want to disrupt anything. We don't want to do anything too crazy. We just wanted to, like, have the story and see if we could do it and celebrate love and dance and whatever. And so this is what I decided to wear. Got a picture of it. Um, that was 19-year-old Austin. Uh, made great decisions back then. White pants, turquoise shirt, bow tie, fanny, ta- fanny pack. Oh, and by the way, a random yellow porcelain banana dog, okay? That was what I thought would be great to get me into a wedding. And so we go, we get to the hotel, um, and uh, me and a couple friends, and we look at the directory, and we find a wedding um, that's happening in one of the ballrooms. And so we walk over to it, but the next thing was like, how are we supposed to get in this place? And as we walk up to like see where it is, there's these two like huge security guards with these big clipboards in the guest list, okay? So they're, and we're like, and I obviously am like looking sketch at this point. Like you guys saw that, right? And so I'm like, I don't know what to do. And so, um, and I was like, look, some of my life motto is just be confident and just see what happens. Like just like act like you belong there. And so I literally walk in like I was like, like it was my party and they don't stop me. They, le- they let me in. Okay, so which sounds awesome. Here's the worst part. It was an extremely intimate Jewish wedding. <laughs> there weren't more than 60 people in the room, true story. And I walk in and everyone's like this. And I'm kind of like having them, I'm like, okay, hi everybody, you know, like, and they're all looking at me, and 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 like, and the craziest thing, like, I have a picture of it, like, we actually made it in, like, there's the, there's like the cake and everything, like, there's me made it in, and and here's the crazy thing, they they just let me in, we danced the whole night, we ate, we, I mean, everything, and they just like loved it the whole night, it was just the craziest thing, right? It was awesome, never forget it. Um, but here's my question. Have you ever been to a party that you weren't probably invited to? Have you ever been at a table or a nice dinner where you knew, like, I don't belong here? Like, I haven't earned my spot. Have you ever been to a place where you're vastly aware that you don't necessarily belong? Now, in our verses today, Jesus describes the most bizarre crashing of a banquet. But the people who crash it don't sneak in um, the host reverses all societal and religious norms and invites them in to come. People who would never make the list. People who would stand out even more than a 19-year-old wearing white pants, a turquoise shirt, bow tie, fanny pack, and a banana dog, okay, at an intimate Jewish wedding. They would stick out even more. But the story, I want you to catch this, gives us a glimpse into the guest list of heaven, the guest list of heaven. And I want to tell you, it's not who you'd expect There will be billions and billions of proverbial wedding crashers in heaven, sinners who could not earn their way in through good works, 
um, but by God's infinite grace, get a seat at his table, enjoying his goodness forever. Amen? So here's the main point. I want to drill in through these verses. There aren't seats for the self-righteous. There aren't seats for the self-righteous, but there's still room for the sinners. Okay? We think about having the guest list. There aren't seats for the self-righteous, but there's still room for the sinners. So open up your Bibles, Luke 14. It'll be on the screen too. We'll start in verse 15. I'll give some context as we go, but verse 15 is where we'll start. Now, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed, so this is another guy saying this, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Um, So this verse sets the stage for the entire passage. It's kind of what hinges on it. This statement that this guy says is what Jesus responds to with the rest of the verses. So back in verse one of chapter 14, uh, we find out that Jesus is currently at a dinner party with Pharisees. If you're unfamiliar with Pharisees, they were the religious leaders of the day, and they mostly operated out of the belief that meticulous adherence to the law was what earned them God's approval. So it kind of went like this. The more, uh, the more things I do, the more favor I have with God, right? And so that's what religion produces, and that is what we call self-righteousness, right? And so this is, that's what religion produces. It's a righteousness not based on what Jesus has done for you, but it's a righteousness based on what you have done for him, hence self-righteous. And this is what Pharisees often operated in, and this is what Jesus consistently called out in them. And so he's He's with these Pharisees, and he's at this dinner party, and he's basically just teaching. The verses that lead up to this is Jesus teaching, and it's all meant to convict. It's all meant to call them out. And so he goes, first off, he says, hey, when you go to a banquet, this is kind of like Jesus' banquet or feast 101 talk. He goes, number one, do not go, do not sit in a place of honor when you go to a banquet. Sit at the lowest place. And then he says, if you exalt yourself, you're going to be humbled. But if you humble yourself, you're going to be exalted, okay? And then he goes on in verses 12 through 14 and says, hey, um, when you throw parties, don't just invite the people who are going to invite you back. Don't just invite the people who can reciprocate the favor because that all, all operating out of reciprocation is not understanding and living for the resurrection. He goes, you don't have to have people that can reciprocate because you're gonna be repaid in heaven. That's where your reward is. All of this is intended to convict them, to call them out. I mean, think about their party right now. What are they, what are they doing? They're at a party with all the moral heroes of the day. What does it say in verse 15? He says, one of those who reclined at table. So he's not sitting on the ground. He's not in the doorway. He's sitting at the table next to Jesus, and he's reclining. Jesus is calling them out. But for some reason, they don't get it. And verse 15 is evidence of their inability to grasp it. And so look again, Luke 15. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Luke is painting a picture of a toast here. It's like, you know, Jesus gets done with his talk and he goes, yeah, blessed is everyone who eats ki- you know, bread in the kingdom of, of God. And, and the dude's reclining in this convicting teaching. And I can picture him almost like raising his glass and saying that. Um, and so essentially after listening to everything Jesus said, this guy's response with misplaced confidence is basically saying, good thing we'll all be there in heaven to him and his religion. That's, that's what he's saying in verse 15. And what's confusing is the statement, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, is 100% true, right? That's a true statement. But the problem with it is the reason why he thinks he's gonna eat bread in the kingdom of God. 
That is the self-righteousness. That's what Jesus is calling out, and that's what Jesus is about to take a sledgehammer to in our story. Okay, so that's the preface to it, and we'll look at verse, uh, we'll kind of split our story into, into three parts, but let's read 16 and 17 to get the first one. But he said to him, so Jesus responds to this guy who just made the toast, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. Verse 17, and at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. First part of our story is that save the dates are sent. Save the dates are sent. Now, 2,000 years ago, any um, substantial party would always have two invites, kind of like how we do a save the date and we do the actual invite. Um, but I don't know if you know this, but back in the day, they didn't have high vs or fridges or microwaves or KitchenAid mixers or air fryers or Traegers or Instapots, right? They would have to kill the livestock the day before. Um, we're having filet mignon. They would have to go to the field and harvest the vegetables. Um, Caesar salad is on the menu. Uh, let's go. And then they'd go to the orchard and they'd pick the fruit, peaches for sure, obviously. And then they'd go to the vineyard and they'd grab the, the, the grapes and they'd stomp them and press them for wine. And I'm pretty sure it's a sweet Moscato. But essentially, specifying the date wasn't possible because all the real-time prep that went into making it happen, like a, a pull off this huge banquet. So the first invite gets sent. And you're an honored guest. You're welcome. And we'd love to have you over this spring. We're shooting for some time in April, but there's real no, there's no way to exactly tell. But just mark your calendars for some time. Clear your schedule for the month of April. It's going to be sometime in there, right? Um, and everyone seemed to say yes. If you got the first invite and you said no, you would never get the second invite. So all the people that get the second invite... RSVP. They're all like, yeah, let's go. And I want you to know, this would be the event of the year. They didn't have Laszlo's. They didn't have Blue Sushi. They didn't have Adventure Golf Center. They didn't have Escape Room. Uh, they, what, they probably had axe throwing. That, that is one thing that's kind of stayed in. But anyway, I mean, in, anyways, this was the event of the year. In an agrarian, mundane culture, parties like this are what you live for. Okay, no one misses it. This is the thing we're stoked for and waiting for. So the gracious host goes out, harvests the vegetables, raises the animals, slaughters the animals, and after preparing and setting up, the second invite would come. Hey, and the second invite was, let's go. It's ready right now. Um, and so the end of verse 17 says, come for everything is now ready. But look what happens in verses 18 through 20. Second part of our story. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field. I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So second part of our story is that the RSVPs flake out. The RSVPs flake out. One by one, after RSVPing, the guests make excuses as to why they can't come. And remember, they can't freeze the lasagna and heat it up three weeks from now. You know, it doesn't work that way. So if you RSVP'd, you would have food prepared for you. And if you don't come, that food is just wasted. There's no freezing system, right? And so there's going to be a lot of waste that's happening. And I want to point out, anything Anyone that would hear these excuses would think they're absolutely absurd. Like I know stuff, if you're familiar with reading your Bible, you're going to come along stuff that's confusing. And sometimes you just chalk it up to, that was 2,000 years ago. I get, it makes sense. No, no, no. This is confusing to them too. Like this isn't something you read and go, yeah, I guess those oxen really needed checked. You know, guess that land really needed to be seen. No, Two, in 2,000 years, here's what's true about land. 
It never moves. It's always there. It's always going to be there tomorrow. It's always going to be there, you know, a week from now. And so it's like you walk through these excuses, and people probably would have thought Jesus was telling a joke. First excuse, you you bought land, you want to go check it. Again, it's still going to be there. Walking into just a random land sounds better than going to a lavish ball. Second thing, oh, I bought five yoke of oxen. Yeah, I want to go check on them, make sure they're okay. Again, they'll be there tomorrow after the banquet, and you'd rather check on your oxen than eat a free T-bone steak? Like, that sounds better to you than, okay. Well, the third one kind of sounds decent. Like, I just got married. Honestly, sounds like a good husband. Really proud of you. I love that you're valuing your wife. But did you know she's invited too? It's not like you, you got the only, like, dude, bring her, bro. Like, that's not, you'd rather just stay home with her and watch The Office for the eighth time and then eat microwave Totino's pizza rolls instead of, like, going to an amazing banquet with free food, free drink, free dancing. Live. Really? You know, it's like, they would be so shocked when Jesus, like, most commentators believe that there might have been chuckles at the table when Jesus is saying these excuses. That's how crazy it would have been for him to say that these people made an excuse. But that's exactly what Jesus is drawing out. Catch this. Every excuse we make to resist or reject the call of Jesus to come is stupid. It's, it's ridiculous. It, it's, it's as absurd as saying, I want to check I want to check on oxen rather than eating a free T-bone. You know, it's like, that just doesn't make any sense. But when it, whenever we get an invite to something, we really have two options, right? You can, you can make it happen or you can make an excuse. Th- those are kind of your two options. And I have, we all have examples of making excuse or making it happen. So uh, about a month ago, my friends, Ben and Katie Oldman got COVID, unfortunately. And uh, so they're kind of out. And then you know, their quarantine ended Friday. And they're like, hey, you guys want to come over tomorrow, like Saturday? And we're going to have, it's like Peyton, their son, he was turning three. He's kind of like my nephew. Do you want to come over for his birthday? And I'm thinking, okay, so just got out of COVID and uh, Friday, and you want us to come Saturday. And yes, you're out of quarantine, but it feels like there's probably some like COVID residue around your house. Like, I don't really know. Like, you want to come here? You want to meet somewhere, like uh, somewhere. And so Kristen and I are like making excuses. You know, we're like, actually, I think we have a wedding. Kristen's second cousin's getting married in, uh, in uh, Hastings. We're going to go there. You know, it's like, and they're like, oh, that's okay. Let's do Sunday. And we're like, okay, what gift cards do we have? Actually, we're planning on going on a date. We got a gift card to Fazoli's. You know, it's like just the most random excuse we could ever think of. We're like, we, you know, we didn't want to say no, but we wanted to make an excuse to feel. It was a whole thing, right? You make excuses. Other times you make it happen. Uh, I found out a couple weeks ago, my grandpa, unfortunately, uh, got re-diagnosed with cancer, had beat it, got re-diagnosed. He's been bummed. And so we thought, hey, let's, um, let's go visit him. So my dad and I booked a ticket Monday, last Monday, and left on Wednesday. I was supposed to preach last Sunday, and I was like, I'll make it happen. Um, it was Thanksgiving, too. I had to miss it with my family. But Kristen was like, you should go be with your grandpa. We got to surprise him, but we made it happen. There was every reason in the world to say no, but we made it happen. And by the way, I didn't preach last week because I got a scratch on my cornea. It's like a crazy story. And so I literally, and I still was trying to make it happen. I was driving home at one o'clock in my truck, holding my eye open like this on the interstate. And I was like, Skylar, you have to come get me. I made it to Midtown Crossing. I don't even think that was a good idea. But then Skylar came and got me. We got home about three o'clock. True story. So Bob preached. It was awesome. But um, I was supposed to preach this last week. Anyways, but there's this, you can make it excuse or you, you can make it happen in kind of what but my question is, what dictates that? 
Like what, what makes you make an excuse or what makes you make it happen? And I think in regards to spirituality or Christianity, one of the core dictators is a misconception or, or a right view of whatever you're invited to. And so what I'm trying to say is the misconception of Christianity is why billions are making excuses to not follow Jesus, okay? So just here's a litmus test question. Do you think Christianity is a set of rules? Do you think Christianity is a boring, boring luncheon where you compare your good works from the week? Do you think Christianity is a solemn, serious religion? Do you think Christianity is an exclusive group for spiritual superstars? Do you think Christianity is a judgmental mob of moral vigilantes? If you do, of course you're gonna make excuses. Of course you're gonna find other things to do. If you don't think Jesus can satisfy you, of course you're gonna run to that bigger, nicer house. Of course you're gonna look to that new romantic relationship. Of course you're gonna look to new things, a better paying job, a nicer office, more followers on Instagram, then because you don't think Jesus can satisfy you, so that you're gonna go to something different. That's the whole thing, and you have a misconception, and so you'll perpetually go. Let me say it another way. Every time you and I are tempted to make excuses in regards to following Jesus, it's, it's a check engine light blinking that we're not seeing him right, or we're not seeing who he actually is, that he actually can satisfy, that he actually can comfort, that he can actually move and give freedom. We're operating in a huge misconception. Jesus is telling us in these verses, though, what Christianity is. Here it is. It's a party. <laughs> it's a party. And, and I don't mean like keg and jello shots party. I'm saying like, but like a good, holy, righteous, still party, okay? Like, let's hang out on a Friday night. We know how to party, don't we? Yeah, we do. Yeah, we, yeah. Um, and, uh, and it's righteous and it's fun, but it's, it's fun. You know, it's not just like, let's play Settlers of Catan and, you know, play Monopoly again. Like, it's like fun, you know? But Christianity... Some people are like, don't you dare bring Monopoly in here or Catan. Like that is, but listen, Christianity, Jesus is describing the kingdom is an extravagant banquet. That's the way he just chooses to describe it with the best food and the best drink and the best music and entertainment. This is, this is, by the way, is not a new idea. In Isaiah 25, Old Testament, verse six, here's what Isaiah says. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people, so it's a big party, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged well or wine well-refined. Um, I do quite a bit of weddings each, each year, and I did one for my friend in Estes a couple months ago, and I'm kind of, wherever I go, I'm kind of the DPG, the designated prayer guy, okay? So everyone's like, oh yeah, he's a, he needs to pray. I'm like, anyone that's Christian in the room can pray. You know, you know like, I'm not the only guy, but they're like, hey, can you pray for the rehearsal dinner? Yeah, that sounds great. So I pray like I prayed a lot of them. Jesus, you loved parties. You spent a lot of time at weddings and at dinner tables and eating. And um, we just pray that every bite uh, we take, every drink we take, and every conversation we have and laugh we have, we know it's all from you. It's all from your grace. Amen. You know? And I get down with my prayer, and one of the guys at the end of the table, groomsmen, leans over and goes, tell me more about this Jesus that loved parties. And I was like, okay. I was like, well, what do you think about Jesus? Like, what's your view of him? And he goes, well, I grew up Catholic. And so the two views I have of Jesus is one, him like with long hair. He's definitely white, which by the way, he wasn't, but he's white, long hair, and he's holding a lamb. Okay, serious, playful, what's well, very serious. Okay, and then the, the other view, him on the cross dying with blood dripping down his face. 
by the way, both those things are true. I, I, I don't know if there's ever a verse that says Jesus did hold a lamb, by the way, but he probably may, maybe did. I don't know. But he was gentle and he hung out, you know. But he definitely did die. And he has a dynamic to his personality. You can't singularize one aspect or personality trait of Jesus. He's, he's dynamic. But I had told him one of the things that I think is a misconception and we don't see is the humor and the fun and the grace and the joy of Jesus. I think it's so, and I think it has inhibited the coloring of our Bible. Like, it's like we read these bland stories and once you see the personality of Jesus, they start to come alive. And I said, just a couple stories to justify why I'd say that Jesus loved parties is, um, and again, not keg jello shot, you know, like, but just a, a wholesome, righteous party is that his very first miracle that he decides to show his divinity is turning water into wine. And a lot of people know that story, whether you have grew up in church or not. But the crazy thing about the story is that when at a wedding, when you would run out of wine, the party would be done. It's done. And so when they ran out of wine, it was like the party's going to die. And at some point, if Jesus didn't value a party, he's going, that's okay. Hey, it's nine o'clock. Let's all get to bed. And he's like, no. And his mom's like, can you do it? And he's like, "Ah, I guess I can. And so he turns water into wine. The second crazy thing about the story is that what would happen is you would always give your best wine first. You'd always give your best wine first because people are a little more critical in the beginning of the party, but then they kind of loosen up and then you give them the cheaper wine at the end and that's what you finish them off with or whatever. But um, not finish them off in like some crazy way. I'm just saying like the, the end, not, the night finishes with not so great wine, okay? It's like the boxed wine. It's not the top, top shelf stuff. And so anyways, that's it. Elders, am I getting in trouble here? I'm okay. Uh, but, but anyways, um, oh my gosh. But, um, but, Jesus makes the water and the wine at the, when the party is supposed to end, when it's about to end, and the host drinks it and goes, this is, you say, the best wine for the end. And his whole point of that was saying that Jesus in his extravagance didn't just extend it with some, like, the other low-grade wine. He makes the best wine at the end. And people were shocked. In other words, Jesus wanted to keep the party going. He wanted to celebrate and laugh and tell stories and enjoy each other. Ne- next story, in Luke chapter 7, I preached about it a few months ago, um, the artificial Jesus versus the actual Jesus. And in it, the Pharisees are critiquing John the Baptist. And they're going, John, you're way too serious. Life isn't a funeral. And then they're critiquing Jesus, and they're going, Jesus, you're, you're, way too, you're way too much fun. You're way too, you're, you're not serious enough. Life isn't a wedding. Like, stop being so joyful. But their critique of Jesus was that he just loved to be with people. And his friends were people that were drunkards. And Jesus was hanging, he, again, he was righteous, perfect, without sin. But you get this whole different picture of Jesus by those stories, don't you? Than what we naturally see him as. And so what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that the determining factor between you making excuses spiritually or making it happen is probably your misconception of Jesus. Of course, you're not gonna pursue holiness if you don't think Jesus is worth it. Of course, you're not gonna break up with that significant other that you know is not healthy for you if you don't think Jesus could really comfort you. Of course, you're not gonna give unless you really believe he's given to you. Of course, you're not gonna walk into a relationship with Jesus if you think it's just this solemn set of rules. Jesus is reorienting and he's calling out these misconceptions. And so the RSVP guests, they make excuses rather than making it happen, right? At the last minute, but look at the host's response. Um, Verse uh, 21. And so the servant came and reported these things to his master. And then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city. This is crazy, by the way. And bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you've commanded has been done. Best part of the whole section. And there's still room. 
Verse 23, and the master said to the servant, well, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. That my house may be filled. Last part of the story is the outcasts get an invite. The outcasts get an invite. Now, it says the master is angry, but we kind of have to ask the question, like what? What made him so mad? What made him so angry? Well, his banquet is so great and his invited guests are so ungrateful that they don't even come. That makes him mad. And this gives us a glimpse into God's heart and how he feels about people turning down his invitation to free grace. It angers him. It it breaks his heart that Satan has so blinded billions of people to make ridiculous excuses and not following Jesus, that Satan has so blinded billions of people to have a misconception of Jesus, a wrong view of him. Angry that the world is giving glory to things that aren't God. Angry that people are perpetually more unsatisfied and more anxious. Yet in our stubbornness, when we are searching for meaning and, and fulfillment and joy in the world and coming up empty, that we can't just realize maybe Jesus has that to offer. And we just keep digging deeper into the world and we keep getting more anxious and more unsatisfied. He's angry that souls are headed to hell when free grace by faith is offered on the table. Angry that many people who claim to be Christians have no real love for Jesus and no real commitment to faithful obedience. What makes the master so angry that his banquet is so great and the invited guests are so ungrateful that they don't even show up? But look at what he does with the open seats. He doesn't just get angry, he invites more people. So I want you to notice the the word change here. This is really key. I think the most repeated word in here, one of them, is invite. That's kind of the key verb. If you look at it, you can underline it. It says it a bunch of times. Invite, invite, invite. But in verse 21, it changes from invite to bring in. So he goes, end of verse 21, his command is, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind lame. Why didn't he just say invite? Why Why did he change the verb to bring in? Well, Think about it. Poor, crippled, blind, lame. Aside from the poor people, none of them could find their way to this party. None of them could, could get there. You, you, you could give them the date, or in the, you can give them the address. You can give them the exact GPS coordinates. In fact, you can hand them the fanciest invite that they could ever see, they could ever imagine. They could hold in their hands, but they literally can't make it on their own. The crippled people are just laying on their mats. The blind people will just wander around. But um, you don't just need to invite them, right? You need to bring them, which means those servants that were sent out probably had to carry them in or guide them by hand into the party. Think about that. Like they had to throw crippled people over their shoulder and bring them to the party. And listen, City Light, if there was ever a picture of what our lives should be consumed by, it's this. If there's ever a story that should emulate and dictate and consume our lives, it is this. Our master has sent us to go find anyone and everyone that's willing to come to the great banquet of grace. The business executive that has a big home in Wilderness Ridge and the homeless man that just got kicked out of People City Mission. The young family that moved across the street and the old veteran that keeps to himself. The single mom struggling to pay rent and the college student struggling to stay awake in class. The woman with an unplanned pregnancy and the mom facing infertility. The guy selling drugs and the guy selling insurance. Our lives as Christians should be embodied with this same mission. Our God has said, go out quickly to the streets and lanes. Um, 
of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and blind and lame. You have to understand, religious leaders believed there was a, a connection between um, the, your, your physical poverty and your spiritual poverty. So if you're physically cursed, it means you are spiritually cursed. If you are blind or lame, it's because some sin in your life or some sin in your father's life. But nonetheless, physical poverty or physical lameness was communicating a spiritual reality. Make no mistake, this list that Jesus gives, these people signify sinners without a spiritual scent to their name, completely bankrupt. These are people, this list, in our context, that we would think would never come to know God, would never come to know Jesus, people who we think would never make it on the guest list of heaven. And yet God says, go and bring them to my party. Go bring them to the table of grace. And think about this story. This is mind-blowing. Um, as they bring the blind in, the blind people, they can't even see the extravagant, thoughtfully placed table, Right? Like they can't see the golden bowls, the bright colors of fruit. They can't see the immaculate display of the feast. Like I had my friend Whitney and Lexi and Emily set up the table as like kind of a picture of this extravagant banquet and, and it's this tangible thing as we walk in. I'm going, and it's beautiful and it's awesome, but the blind people can't even see it. It'd be, it'd be the same thing as if you just had a regular table and put a paper plate there. They don't care but it's immaculate and it's for them. I mean, think about the hungry beggars. They just walk in and start shoving food in their mouth, right? From starvation, which by the way, is not the way to properly eat fancy food. You ever been to a really fancy restaurant? They give you these tiny little proportions and you're like, what is this? Like I'm paying so much for it. And it's because you're supposed to taste every bite, all the meticulous little things in there. It's like you're slowly slicing it up to take it all in. That's how you're supposed to eat it. And these beggars are just like slamming stuff in their mouth, just like just eating it as fast as they can because they don't know when their next meal would be. Um, in other words, they can't even enjoy the feast the way it should be enjoyed. But the host doesn't even care. He just wants them there, right? It's a beautiful picture. And look at verse 22 again. Um, and so the servant said, actually, sir, what you've commanded has been done. And there's still room. There's still room. Favorite ver words in this passage. Listen, God will not allow there to be a single seat open in heaven. It'll be shoulder to shoulder, jam-packed with grateful sinners, he says, go out to the highways. And the, the, that language of highways is, is talking, is referencing Gentiles, the people who weren't Jewish, people not from around here. This is an invitation to people who don't think, look, or act like we do, people who aren't from where we're from. And again, friends, don't miss this. The Bible is soaked in God's heart for the nations. This isn't just a Govember thing. This is Jesus' emphasis on reaching the ends of the earth. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every language, not only will this great banquet be filled with poor beggars in the alleys, but it will also be filled with foreigners from across the world, from the highways. It'll be packed from Japan and Saudi Arabia, from Pakistan and Malaysia, from Cambodia and China, from India and Iraq, from Oman and Vietnam, from Jordan and Bangladesh. Doesn't this sound like an amazing party? Are any of you excited to be a part of this and to sit at the table of grace shoulder to shoulder and go, how did we even get here? You go, I don't know, man. It's, it, it's crazy. Like this is the beauty of what heaven is like. And the other thing I wanna know in verse 22 is how the verb changes again. So it went from invite, 
right? And then it went to bring them, and now it changes to persuade them, okay? So it intensifies. So look again at 22. He says, sir, what you've commanded has been done. Uh, still, there's still room. Verse 23, and the master said, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Why, why change it to compel? Why doesn't invite do the trick? Heck, why doesn't bring them do the trick? Well, compel is a strong word that basically means to persuade them. And the reason he uses this word is because they would need to be persuaded. They would need to be convinced. Here's three reasons. Number one, why they need to be compelled is because verses 12 through 14 show us that this is a reciprocal culture. This is a reciprocal culture. Uh, You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You invite me to your party, and I'll invite you to my party. The poor, though, have nothing to offer. They're not throwing parties. They'd be reluctant to accept the invite because they can't pay back this great honor. Nothing was simply a gift in that culture. It was reciprocal. It was always attached to an indebting obligation to pay it back, and they had no means to. So think about it. They're going, hey, come to this party. I can't. There's no, no way I can pay back. No, no, no. You don't understand. This host is different. He he doesn't want to be paid back. Just come. That, that's the, persuade him. Bring, bring him in. Number two, they wouldn't know how to act or what's, it, or what's aware. Now, the host of this great banquet is assumed to be extremely wealthy. Even the reference to, um, uh, or the, the reference to the, the bigness of the party um, is, is, is embodying this, this reality. The people he invite are, are, are wealthy. And so the table's set. The food is unimaginable. The drink is the best you'll find. The music is live and engaging. The candles and laps burning. This is such an incredible setup. And as they would walk in, these, this new people on the guest list, as they would walk in or most likely be carried in, they would immediately stink up the room. They'd immediately be aware, I... I don't, I, don't, I'm, I don't belong here. And you think about like they're, they're beggars, right? Like they have dirty, raggedy clothes and they're looking around and all these other people have these nice outfits on and they'd be awfully aware of how underdressed they are. They'd be starving, like we mentioned. And so everyone else is petitely using their, their, their forks and their knives and which one goes to which and there's several of them, I don't know. And these people are just with their hands grabbing it and just... And just just eating so much. Again, they would just, they would stick out. And by the way, the the Gentiles, they would stick out like sore thumbs. Their appearance, their skin color, their clothes, their accent, their language, they would undoubtedly have the anxious thought, I don't, I don't belong here. Kind of like a 19-year-old in white pants, turquoise shirt, bow tie, banana dog in an intimate Jewish wedding, okay? Um, They don't belong here. They would be vastly aware. That's why they need to be persuaded. No, it's okay. There's no dress code for this. You can come as you are. Number three, this is absolutely unprecedented. Jewish people couldn't eat with Gentiles. You don't intermix. Additionally, no one has ever heard of a story of a Jewish wealthy man packing his extravagant banquet with poor, crippled, blind, and lame, and then sending his servants to go to the highways and bring in foreign strangers to enjoy his meal. It's completely unprecedented they would need to be persuaded. Friends, don't miss this. What Jesus is saying is melting people's minds. They have no ability to cognitively understand what Jesus is saying. People would think this host's inclusivity to invite such riffraff would be irreverent. It would be inconceivable. There's so much wrong with this story, isn't there? Number one, 
there's no way those people would turn down the invite. There's no way they'd make that excuse. Number two, there's no way the great host would send his invites to fill up his party with the social riffraff, the lame, the blind, the crippled, the poor. It ruined the party. It would stink up the room. And number three, there's no way the great host would go to such great extents to have his servants travel to the highways and invite foreigners and Gentiles to this party. There's no way. What's Jesus' point? To sledgehammer religious security. That's what he's doing, to disrupt any religious pride, to flip the tables of their nicely assumed religious traditions to this ignorant man who proposes a self-inviting toast. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying heaven is going to look a lot different than you think. Some hands that reach for that bread in the kingdom will be smooth and soft, but some will be callous from a blue-collar life, and some will be dirty and trembling as they reach for it. But make no mistake, not a single seat will be filled with self-righteous. City Light, heaven will be shoulder to shoulder with sinners who admitted they could not save themselves and sought Jesus to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. That is the guest list of heaven. Jesus sledgehammers religious security. He shatters our, he shakes up our view of salvation and he sends invites to sinners. Don't miss it. There are not seats for self-righteous but there's still room for the sinners. So come to Jesus. Now, he, make, he makes this point clear in verse 24 to wrap it all together. He says in this last verse, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So he stops talking about someone else's banquet in a parable form, and he says, now I'm talking about my banquet. The self-righteous that think they've sealed their invite through religious achievements will not have a seat at my banquet. And I, I want to kind of close with Revelation 19.9. You can jot that down next to this passage, but this is what it says. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So notice what Jesus calls his banquet that he's talking about here. What's he call it? The marriage supper of the Lamb. What's that mean? Catch this. This is mind-blowing. That the great preparation for this great banquet of heaven wasn't the slaughtering of animals, but the sacrifice of of God's own son, the perfect innocent lamb, Jesus. It cost him everything to prepare this toast for you and I, for, for, for sinners. The father planned it before time. The son paid for it with his life and the spirit now persuades us to come. So here's my question to end. Will you scribble your name? Will you try to scribble your name on the guest list of heaven with the ink of your morality? Or will you, by faith, for free, accept that your name is written in Jesus' blood? Will you ignorantly assume you and your friends will make it in because of your goodness? Or will you spend your life carrying the blind and the lame and foreign sinners into the banquet of grace to see God's goodness? Let's pray.